the Magic Book Club podcast. What a treat this podcast is for me, uh, as well as it's for you, I hope. I couldn't love doing this more, sitting down with great writers uh, to talk about their new books. But today is even more special for me uh, because uh, this guy really is one of my favourites. Safely already in the canon with books like Us and One Day and Starts for Ten. And I'm very glad to say that David Nichols is back with another fantastic book. These, uh, these introductions are so <laughs> awkward, aren't they? But I mean every word. David Nichols, lovely. Uh, welcome, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Today is, in fact, your publication day. It is, yes. Uh, after today, that's it. There's nothing else I can do. I'm not allowed <laughs> to rewrite anything. If I spot any mistakes, it's out there. It's, uh, it's, it's all done. What happens if you find a typo? What do you do if you find um, a typo? There are a couple of tiny mistakes that I've not mentioned yet, but I will at some point. Oh, wow. Maybe. Just (laughs) tiny, tiny things. Just a couple of things. What's interesting is when a book gets translated, the translators go through literally word by word, you know, because the process is so intense. Yeah. And sometimes they spot little tiny inconsistencies. Right. Like uh, you say a room is windowless and then someone opens a window. Uh Uh-huh. There's one of those in there, which I haven't read. I'm now going to have to read the book again. I'm going to go hunting for it and start a, a trivia forum. I, I couldn't quite bring myself to tell Nick, but I will. Someone <laughs> pointed it out to me the other day. Okay, all right, good. We'll watch for that one. We'll look for the mistakes in Sweet Sorrow. There are very few mistakes in this book. It's it's an absolute masterpiece. And it's the it's your first book in five years. Five years, yeah. What, yeah. what have you been doing? What are you, having a holiday? Well... Uh, I, I write scripts as well, and, and that's incredibly time-consuming. And you never know with a script when it's going to get greenlit, and when it does, you've got to be ready to go and do all the rewrites. And uh, I wrote this show called Patrick Melrose, which suddenly went into production. And even though the scripts were supposed to be finished, some, there's always something you can change. And mm. so I did that for three years. Okay. So how does it? what happens to your brain when you leave script writing David Nichols and you become novel writing David Nichols? Do you have to change or in fact is it very yeah. little? No, uh, uh, script writing is very collaborative. Um, you have loads of meetings. Everyone has an opinion. You throw away material in a very cavalier way. You write script scenes just to see if they work and then they get discarded. Um there's a lot of arguing, um, a lot of input from from actors, from the director. It's incredibly stressful and quite technical. Right. And often you're thinking about things like budget and casting and running time. A novel doesn't have to be any particular length. Um, it's much more personal. Uh, it's very, very quiet. You know, suddenly when you stop writing scripts, it's like someone turning the volume down because it's just mm. you sitting by yourself. Um, trying to conjure up a world. And it's a bit lonely, to be honest. Yeah. But I also really love it. And I loved writing this book in particular. It is a fantastic book. So tell Thank us about you. it. So, so you've taken us... I mean, you couldn't... It's a bit like when you hear a great song and you're like, it's like it's written for me. <laughs> but, but this book is... You've gone back to the 90s. Yeah. Right? Like, the 90s is all about, like, imprinted on me. You're writing about this this slightly awkward, gauche actor. Well, ends up being an actor, which is what... Yeah what I've done. Um, What drew you back to the 90s, first of all? Let's start with that. Why did you want to go back to that decade? Well, I'm not as... uh, I mean, my 90s was very different from your 90s because I'm so much older. (laughs) I was was 16 in uh, 1983, I think. Uh, Yeah, 1983. Mm -hmm. And Charlie, the main character, is 16. And I suppose I wanted to avoid writing my own childhood, my own adolescence, really. I wanted to get away from that. I'd done a bit of that in my first book, Start for Ten, and I wanted to write a different world, a different time. I also wanted to write about someone looking back at their their 16th year 
And I didn't want it to be a 52-year-old. It needed to be someone who was at a different stage of their life. So the book is narrated by a 38-year-old looking back at his 60s. I mean, that's years. literally how old I am. Right. I mean, did there you actually just have a quick look at my maybe life? I, maybe, I, maybe I wouldn't want to <laughs> <laughs> confess, Sorry, but, but it's all... It's it's your story. It's astonishing, <laughs> but also because the the drama thing, he ends up um, going and doing a production of Romeo and Juliet, primarily because he fancies a girl. I mean, mine was uh, what was my measure for measure? measure exactly measure. the same okay. reason why I did it. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, obviously, you know, and, and the experience of any teenager in any decade, there's going to be a lot of consistency, you know, a lot of similarities, and all that sort of time. Yes, I mean, I worried about it a bit because, you know, I was. Um, my experience of 97 was very different and you want to make sure that you get things right. Um, but you also have to hang on to the idea that the kind of awkwardness and the humiliation and the intensity and the passion and the the, the, the craziness of being that age are constant. You know, even now in the internet age that you're still going to have those feelings and those frustrations and those feuds and those crushes and that that, that will always be the case. Mm, mm. But I, I did also want it to be accurate and often the way into that the way to do that is not to overdo it so there are references from the time but it's not as if everyone's always opening a newspaper and talking about tony blair no you right know, it's sort of yes. just it's used hopefully quite sparingly mm. but it's strange that no one has a mobile phone and that instantly lets you know that you know this is set in a different era now, obviously, at the moment, everyone thinks about technology and the experience of being a teenager. Uh, you kind of marry those up and say only negative things about them. But from my point of view, I, I can only imagine it's positive. I mean, obviously, there's going to be negatives. But yeah. that ability to communicate and share and vent your feelings. Whereas back then, especially with Charlie, yeah, he's got this incredible monologue going on where you know his... Us, the reader, we know his truth. We know what's happening inside his head. But he doesn't tell anyone anything. He's so, it's so walled up in there. Yes, I wonder if that has changed. I mean, it's quite... Um, it's quite a, he's having quite a tough time when we first meet him. You know, he's got these friends who he loves, but their whole friendship is based around just teasing each other and beating each other up all the time. And he doesn't really have anyone to talk to at home. He has a rather distant relationship with both of his parents. His parents have split up, and his father is in the grip of something that we recognize as depression, but which no one dares name. So he's rather lonely, and I did want to write about not just the kind of the youth and passion of that time, but also how lonely and sad and scary it can be as well, to write a realistic version of um, what being 16 is like. There's a passage where Charlie says, you know, the greatest lie that youth tells, uh, that age tells about youth is that it's somehow carefree. And it just isn't. It's full of um, worry and, and insecurity and self-consciousness and self-loathing and all mm. of those things. Mm. And I wanted to write that truthfully, but within a love story that was hopefully also joyous and funny and life-affirming. Definitely all of those things. Thank Definitely you. all of the above. Um, but it's true, though, isn't it? We really belittle the emotions and the experiences of teenagers. And yeah. in this book, you don't. And I, I love that. Thank you. It's, it's Thank fantastic. You. Um, Let's talk about the parents. Yeah. That's fascinating. The dad is obviously in the grip of this, this depression. The mum's choices are weird. I find what she's done very strange. I don't want to yeah. give too much away because yeah. this is a podcast people are going to listen to and then they're going to come to your book. But her decision to uh, go and have this life and he's still with the dad, I found that fascinating. But Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible breakup, really. The, 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 it's been, the marriage has been in trouble for a little while and the mum has had an affair and it's been discovered and she's left home. And um, she feels very guilty about it because her husband is in a terrible state and she kind of leaves Charlie behind almost as a, a carer. 
And sixteen-year-old boy. He's sixteen, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't. You know, he talks. He talks. Someone says, "You, you do realize you're your father's carer," and he says, "But I'm a carer who doesn't care." You know, he just wants to get out and have his own adventures. And I suppose another feature of being sixteen is that there's a tendency to be a little bit self-centered, a little bit self-absorbed, and uh, perhaps even a little callous. Um, when we look at our parents, we don't necessarily recognize them as flawed, failing, troubled human beings. And we, Charlie resents the fact that his father loses his authority, isn't, isn't the strong, stable parent that he really needs. Mm, mm. It's fascinating, and it? it plays out beautifully. It's so great. Um, also, another thing as well, David, that, uh, that I found really interesting, the book is full of uh, risk. Like, everyone's risking stuff. The, yeah. the, the, the dad risks stuff with the business, and that yes, doesn't go yeah. well. The, the mum risks leaving her family behind. Yeah. And, and Charlie's taking these risks, going in, uh, leaving his, the comfort and safety of his uh, uh, friends from school and going to this new group. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's, that, that's such an important part of uh, both being a teenager, but then like, you, you first come across it when you're a teenager and you leave childhood behind and you realise life is a massive risk. But for you, hmm. you, you feel, it feels like looking at your personal history, you've had a very safe kind of upbringing in, in, in Hampshire yeah. and stuff, and none of this drama seems to have happened to you. So where does, it, where does it come from? I suppose the biggest risk I took was, you know, when I was a kid at school, I was, unlike Charlie, you know, Charlie fails all his GCSEs, and I was a real creep and swat. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to get the most O-levels possible that year, and I was very... Um, uh, rigorous and a bit kind of narrow-minded and conservative, I think, and a bit kind of a bit straight and boring. And um, but I, the one thing I felt very strongly about was this whole business of culture, books and films and plays and uh, television. I watched endless plays on television, and I loved it all. And when I was um, choosing, you know, what I was going to do next. It was always that I was going to be a doctor or a scientist, something like that. And I I sort of threw it all up in the air to be, um, to do drama and English literature. And my parents, for my parents, it was an insane move. (laughs) You know, no one had ever been to university and I had this extraordinary opportunity. And I I gave it all up to go and write about poems for three (laughs) years. And um, At what point have you got to turn around to your parents and go, all fine, we're we're all fine? My early 30s. (laughs) I mean, it took a long time. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think for my parents it was quite terrifying. You know, I didn't earn a living from writing until I was sort of 31, 32. I didn't didn't actually do it full time until I was 29. Mm. I spent most of my 20s... um, Failing as an actor, so I and suppose, stand up. I read the other day. Well, I did a lot of stand up at university, and okay. there's a terrible day that come. I was in a double act with my friend Matthew, who's a theatre director, and and he didn't really want to do it anymore. I'd have been very happily, I'd have very happily gone on and 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 worked in tried to have a living in comedy. Yeah, but a terrible day came when I realised that I actually was the straight man, and <laughs> without Matthew, I didn't really have anything to, to do on stage, so I gave it up. But the first writing I really did uh, was writing these silly sketches, you know, mm. kind of university review stuff. Uh, throughout my 20s, I didn't write anything at all, really. Right, okay. Not till quite late in my 20s. And were you going to Edinburgh and things like that and doing all that Yeah, yeah, I was, yes. I mean, one a part of one day is set in Edinburgh, and that dates mm. back to me, you know, putting on terrible plays and falling in love with the city. But um, uh, yet most of my 20s was spent you know, trying to get work as an actor. And I did work, but always in tiny parts, always understudying, always playing yeah. soldiers and servants and silhouettes. 
It's funny looking back from a position of now success in, in, in career and in life generally and looking at the results of that risk and looking at what yeah. it flowered and, and what it became. And you kind of want to go back and you feel it feels with Charlie very strongly. Yeah. You want to go back to him and say, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. The 40-year-old yeah. you is here, or 38-year-old you is here saying yeah. It's fine. And I wish I could do the same. And maybe that's what, why we love Charlie so much, because we, we feel we want to comfort him and sort of give yes. him that perspective. I mean, when, it, when the book starts, he really is in trouble. You know, he's, he, he's not really happy at home. He's always running away from his father, and his, he's not going to be joining his friends at college, and he's, he is a little bit lost. But, yes, again, without giving too much away, yes. it's sort of, uh, it, well... Let's not, let's not give anything away. Because <laughs> I hate that when I listen to any book podcast and they start casually throwing the plot around. Yeah. I'm like, no. Um, there's some brilliant set piece moments in the book as well, David. Um, I mean, the opening uh, of the book, it begins at a, a, a disco. Yeah. Um, the, end of, the end of year disco, the end of school disco. I mean, I love it so much. I love it so much because, again, I don't know if this gives anything away. It probably does. But just how that chapter ends is, is genius. Yeah. The way, you know, okay. it's one. <laughs> come on, I've got to try and edge myself away. Um, and the pool game as well, when they had the drunk game of pool with his friends. There's there's a lot of set piece moments. Um, how many times do you take a run at those moments? Because coming from a comedy background, which I do, mm. I know that if I write a comedy sketch, I'm going to write that six, seven, eight times, and it's in, in, until it works. You only and comedy makes you you know it works when it works. You just know. Do you take the same approach when you're writing these things? I find actually, if I have a set piece in my mind, um, that I write it quite quickly, often by hand, uh-huh. and that it's usually quite close to the the first draft. Um, uh, the same with dialogue. Uh, I, I'm very happy writing dialogue. And, I, you know, when I was an actor, I did a lot of improvisation and it was always something that I enjoyed. And as a writer, I, I kind of, I enjoy the rhythms and the the, the, the the interruptions and the writing long speeches and giving them a shape. I'm, I'm really happy writing dialogue. For me, the thing that I that I have to work on rewrite is descriptive prose, you know, the, the bits okay. in between. Yeah. I worked as a script writer for for years and years and years and in a script you only have to say you know interior living room day mm. um when i started writing fiction i i suddenly became very self-conscious about well do you describe the curtains do you yeah. do you, how much do you say what everyone is wearing you're the cameraman um, you're the dop yeah, exactly you've got, you've got it, and the reader has to know as well and it took me a little while to work out what a reader will fill in themselves and, and what a writer needs to provide so that's the thing that um scares me as a writer but I love writing the, the the comic stuff. I get more insecure about the um, the times where the mood becomes more lyrical or darker. Those are the the bits that I I start to worry. Okay, it's good to know you've got your insecurities. Oh any, yeah. Any aspiring writers <laughs> will be thrilled to hear David Nichols has huge insecurities. insecurities. That's yeah. very good. It's very comforting. Um, also, endings as well. That's a huge part of your your thing. You always yeah. do fantastic endings where we get. Um, Punched in the face. Um, but do, at what point do you know? At what point did you know with this book? Did you sort of sit yeah. there and map it all out or did you discover it? Um, it I, the, the approach has been different with every book. When I started writing books, I used to write these great long Bibles with every chapter mapped out and everything that was going to happen to all of the characters and biographies of the characters and their background and where they were born and all of this stuff. And I do less of that now, but I do it in my head. Mm. It's still there, I just don't write it out. Um, when I wrote One Day, that had to be planned out very, very carefully because it was a kind of jigsaw. I, I had to know where the characters were, not just on the one day, not just on the 15th of July each year, but but what they were doing on the other 364 days um, and fill out those stories. With this book, I had a file just called Novel, 
And for about a year, I threw things into this file. Um, paragraphs, descriptions, bits of dialogue, uh, structural ideas. And uh, eventually there were about 50, 60, 70,000 words mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, I went off to work on Patrick Melrose, came back, printed out this file, and just um, drew a circle around the things that I thought were good, the things that I enjoyed reading, the things that seemed to have potential. Yeah. And no one else helps you with that. That's just you. That's just me. And no one ever sees it. I mean, I'd be horrified if anyone saw it. You know, it's full of terrible things. Well, where are they now? Are those papers destroyed? What happens? Because let's be honest, you you know, when you cark it, David Nichols, what's going to happen to all your stuff? Are we going to go around uh, a museum and go, he was rubbish? (laughs) It'll get the paper stuff gets thrown away. And it's all on a a hard drive somewhere. But it is, it's uh, it's interesting to look back. I mean, I I found the notes for... um, one day the other day and and uh, the characters had different names but and there were a few plot points that were different but generally speaking it was pretty close to the final version because I'm not one of those I never want to find myself staring at a blank page I always want to know where I'm going and I would never start a novel if I didn't have a pretty clear idea of the ending oh okay so did yeah. you, and was that the case with that was Sorrow? the case with this as well yes right, right. because um my training is in screenwriting, and in the screenwriting, they won't let you start until you've got that structure. Mm. And uh, and I've brought that with me. Uh, so I'm in awe of novelists. You know, I'm not saying that's the way to do it. I'm I'm in awe of novelists who start with an image or a sentence that has a certain resonance and improvise. But for me, that's um, I want to be quite rigorous about the story and make sure that there's a reason. Mm-hmm. to turn the page so I'm, I'm quite tough about that we have this ongoing discussion on this podcast we have the pants yeah. we have the pantsers and the, the planners pantsers. and you are yes. a planner lee I'm child planner. is the ultimate pantser lee child's right these, these these thrillers where yeah. so much is going on he has no idea what's coming up next that's amazing to me i, I i'm because he does it so well yeah uh, and uh, i wonder if he has to go back and fix things maybe he doesn't um i mean i'm not my my novels tend not to be particularly plot heavy but I know that every I, I, I realise that there is a rhythm to them I know that there will be a big comic set piece every 40 or 50 pages I know that there'll be some chapters which are just pure dialogue um, I know that there'll be leaps in time and little flash forwards flashbacks I, I have a sense of the structure that's quite detailed before I write mm-hmm. um, so the idea of improvising is, is terrifying to me I tried it once and I ended up throwing away you know, 30,000 words, and I don't want to do that again. And how long is, how many thousand words is a novel? Roughly like 100,000? Um, uh, about 120,000. Right. This okay. novel is uh, uh, 110. Okay. I think one day is 135. Okay. So you threw 10. away a good percentage of a novel there. Uh, oh, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't so much the page count, it was the time. I mean, it was, a, it was the best part of a year's work, uh, which was a bad sign, you know, that it had taken so long to write so little. That's terrifying. You have to be so cavalier with your work, but you do, don't you? Well, otherwise, I'd be, you know, sitting here trying to talk about a book <laughs> that I didn't really like very much. What was that I'd, one about? Then you... it was, um, it was, it was after one day, and I didn't want to write a love story. I thought I'll show them uh, <laughs> that, that I can do something much darker. And it was a, it was a father son story, but it was, um, it was quite mean spirited. It was quite harsh. It was a comedy, but it was pretty. Pretty unrelenting. And, who do you and want? Tough. Who do you want to show when you say show them? Everyone loves your stuff. What do you mean? I'll show. I them? suppose show I, that you're not Richard Curtis. You mean, and you'll sort of go. Mm, uh, not so much. I mean, I, 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 I suppose there's a, a, um, a worry that you might just, you know, retread a familiar formula, and mm. and uh, you have to strike a balance. I think between recognizing the the voice you have and what you do that people enjoy and relishing that, 
but not being complacent and making sure you move forwards and you get better. I always want each book to be better than the last. And, and, and I would hate to write a kind of contractual obligation, something that I didn't really feel. Yeah, and yeah. in this, the case of the thing that got thrown away, I, there, was a, there, there was a sort of certain tapping of the table after one day. You know, when's the next one coming out? We need to take advantage of, yes, of, of course. the popularity of the book. And that takes a tremendous amount of strength from you as the writer then to resist that tapping of the table and say, no, I'm not ready. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was, it was I'm very grateful to my publishers for accepting that I needed to go back to page one because I could have technically finished that abandoned book. I knew everything that was going to happen yeah. uh, by that stage. And uh, and I don't think I'd have... I might have grown to love it, but certainly when I showed it to my agent, I didn't love it. And when he said, throw it away, <gasps> I I, uh, I was quite grateful. Yeah. Not the same day, but the day after. Good agent. To say that. <laughs> He's a very good after agent. The, after the impact of your first book, and then say yeah. the second one. I think again. he said, you're insane not to have a love story in this, because, mm. you know... It, it not not just because um, it's what readers want, but because, you know, it's something you do well. I mean, John le Carey doesn't sit down and think, God, I mustn't write about spies. He embraces, you know, his subject matter and, and, and yet still writes originally every time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, your books are definitely evolving and you're, it's fantastic. Sweet Thank sorrow. you. It's, it's wonderful. I really mean that. Um, your, your writing process, you said yeah. earlier on you write by hand with some sort of pen device no no mostly by computer but some okay. if i'm stuck by hand and All if right. i'm writing um there's a chapter in one day where dexter goes to a nightclub and has a kind of crazy bad night and i wrote that you know in about an hour and a half with a pen and paper because it felt as if it the rhythm of it needed to be constant it needed to be like being in his head and looking through his eyes mm. and sometimes if i want there to be that kind of flow to something then i'll write by hand or i'll write in the present tense um, but usually I write on a computer. The one thing I am quite strict about, uh, you know, I don't have much writing wisdom, but the one I, the one tip I have is that you should ideally not edit on screen or certainly not edit your final draft on screen because um, it's very hard to maintain the level of concentration required to weigh every word on screen. Whereas if you print it out and you edit as a reader rather than a writer with a pen in your hand, and you will see many, many things that on the screen um, get lost. Yes. And yes. so that's the only time that I, one of the few times that I pick up a pen, um, most of the time I'm tapping away. That's great. Um, listen, uh, David Nichols, I could talk to you for hours. Um, you. Your new book, Sweet Sorrow, it's set in the 1990s, right? So I'm yeah. going to do very quickly, I'm going to give you a 1990s quiz. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah. So I want you to see just how much research you did because it sounds okay. from what you've just been saying like you've done loads. Uh, this is quite easy, really. Name all five Spice Girls. Okay, well, uh, you want their nicknames or their you real know, names? As well, okay. No, I want their real names, I think. Yeah, okay. you can't go posh well, baby blah. Uh, baby Spice. Mm -hmm. uh, what was her name? Emma. Emma. Um, I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I do know this one, okay. and I've suddenly got performance anxiety. Great, great. Uh, not allowed to get help from your PR, that's not allowed. I can see what's happening Emma over there. Emma Bunton. Yeah, Emma Bunton, Emma very Bunton. good. Yeah, okay. I just had B, um, I'd forgotten it was Bunton, so well done there. Uh, um, Sporty was... Mm -hmm. Mel. 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 Mel C. Yeah, Mel C. C. Then, course, great. Mel B was yeah, scary. Good. And Jerry yes. was... Uh, uh, Jerry Halliwell was... Uh, 
Ginger. Ginger. I didn't want to say ginger, but ginger spice. Ginger yeah. spice. There we are. Is that, have we done all of them? I think that's it. That was it? excruciating. We were all terrible. That I've even got the answers in front of me. Uh, Victoria we... and Victoria. I think if it was Victoria Beckham. But Victoria Beckham. Oh, yeah, Victoria Beckham. Yeah, but we were excluding her because she didn't do the reunion <laughs> tour recently. Snubbing, yeah. uh, okay, what was the biggest grossing film of the 1990s? The biggest film. Oh, I know that one. It's Titanic. $659 million. Uh, the biggest selling book of the 1990s in the UK. Biggest selling book. Oh, that's a good one. What would that have been? We have to base it on one of the biggest moments of the 1990s, which features in your book, In Sweet Sorrow. Okay. Towards um, the end of the book. Ah, okay. So, uh, sorry, it's, it's related to it was, that. It is related to a moment that happens towards the end, end of, of Sweet the book. Sorrow. Okay. Yeah, so when they're on the beach. A, oh, okay. Is it a biography of Princess Dine? Very good. That Diana, was the biggest Diana. Wow. Her true story by Diana Andrew Moore. Wow. Sold a lot. That. Bridget Jones's diary was second. Okay. Um, what date did Tony Blair become prime minister? It was June 1997. May 1997. It was the 2nd of oh May 1997. I think I might have found a second mistake in the book. And then, no, I know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, fine. go on, let's <laughs> No, it's fine. Not really. No, 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 no it's fine. What's he done? <laughs> um, this is what happens. If you, if you immerse yourself in the culture of 1990s, you don't have Google, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, David Nichols, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank so, you so, so much. So thrilled that you found time to Thank come you. in. Uh, and congratulations. Sweet Sorrow by David Nichols is out now and it is a wonderful, wonderful summer read. Make sure you grab it as soon as possible.